Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. Really glad that you're here this morning and um, glad that you can be here as we start a new series. If you happen to follow us on Instagram or on Facebook, you already know what's coming a little bit this morning, and I'm just going to use that as a plug. That's a great way for us to communicate with you. So if you don't already, and those are means of communication you use, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. I'm not really cool enough to do that myself, but other people have helped me to do that so that I can pretend to be cool. One of the things that you're going to know is coming up is the start of this new series that we're starting called Marvelous God. It's a journey through the Psalms together, not all of them. If you happen to know, there's 150 Psalms. We're not going to, it's not a 150-week series. But our hope is that this series would help us kind of move us to see God in a new way, that it might move us to see God in a more complete way. And one of the reasons I'm excited about this series for us particularly as a church is I think it gives us an opportunity to do something that we rarely do, certainly something we rarely preach, and that's to spend the next eight weeks in the Psalms. We read the Psalms. Those of us who read the Bible will read the Psalms from time to time. If you have a Bible reading plan, a lot of times it'll throw a Psalm in there, maybe one a day, one a week. So we read the Psalms a lot, but we rarely teach through them. And there's a few reasons for that. One, there there are a lot of them, so it's kind of intimidating. One, they sound different than a lot of other things that we read. They're actually just really hard to teach. So we don't teach them a lot. They're a little bit overwhelming. But here's what I want you to understand, you recognize, we would say the Psalms are poetry. Do you recognize that one-third of your Bible is poetry? Did you know that? It's a third of the Bible. You've got poetry in the Psalms. You have poetry in the Proverbs. You have poetry in the Song of Solomon. You have it in Job. You have it in Lamentations. It's a huge chunk of your Bible. And we tend to think that the Bible is God speaking to His people, And it is. Of course it is. But a big chunk of the Bible is God's people speaking back to God or speaking to each other about God. And that's an important part of God's Word that we don't want to overlook just because it's difficult or different. Part of the reason that I think all of that poetry and all of that language is in Scripture is because it's hard for us to know God. It's hard for us to understand Him. It's hard for us to express Him because we lack the words. We lack the vocabulary to describe God and we lack the understanding even if we had the vocabulary to describe God or to express Him. So what we could do for the next eight weeks is we could do a study of the attributes of God because we have some really big words that describe what parts of characteristics of God are like. And so we could come every week and we could tell you that God is omnipotent or that God is omnipresent or that God is transcendent or that God is immutable. And then we could spend each sermon describing what each of those words mean and then you would go home and you would say, I understand now that God is omnipotent and I understand that that means that God is all-powerful so I understand that in some way God is like that or God has that characteristic. But the problem is understanding the definition of a big word doesn't necessarily help us understand a big God. Does that make sense a little bit? Because I don't think understanding that God is all these big words would change how I feel about God. 
I don't think it would change how I relate to God. Let me give you an example. If you were to come to me and you were to ask me, what is your dad like? I wouldn't give you a list of describing words. If you said, what is your dad like? I wouldn't say, well, my dad is, um, he's punctual, he's intelligent, he has integrity. No, I, I wouldn't do that. That's how I would describe a coworker who's applying for a job somewhere. But that's not how I would describe my own father. How would I describe my dad? Those things might all be true, but I would describe those as I relate to them. I would describe them as I experience them in my day-to-day life. So I wouldn't say that my dad is punctual. I would say that my dad never missed a football game. Do you see the difference? I wouldn't say, for example, that my dad is intelligent. intelligent. I would say that my dad spent a year walking beside me helping me pass algebra. Barely. (laughs) I wouldn't tell you that my dad has integrity. I would just tell you that my dad has never given me a reason not to trust him completely. That's the difference between knowing someone and describing someone using words or characteristics. The problem is when people ask us to tell them about God, we give them God's resume. And we say God is loving and he's faithful and he's all these other big words. But we're not describing a relationship with God. And what I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms give voice to what it looks like to live in relationship with God. What does it look like to experience the love of God? What does it look like to walk along with God in our day-to-day life? Usually, on a Sunday morning, we come to Scripture or we come to the sermon and we say, okay, tell me what I'm supposed to learn. When we come to the Psalms, we come to them and say, tell me what I'm supposed to feel. Because it's expressing the heart of someone in relationship with God. That's why I'm excited about this series, and that's why we come to Psalms for this series, because we've said we want to know God, we want to understand God. So let's come to a book where people have used poetry and psalms and imagery to try to express what God is like, what it's like to be in relationship with Him. That's why we're doing this. Eight weeks eight specific psalms that describe eight unique qualities of what God is like as we relate to Him, as we walk with Him in relationship. We're going to open the Word of God. We're going to look at one of those psalms this morning. And as I do each week, I just want to ask you if you would join with me in prayer before we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, We come to your word this morning, and we just ask that you would reveal yourself through it. Lord, would you help us to understand you in a new way? Would you you give us just a, a slightly bigger glimpse of who you are and what you're like this morning through your word? Father, we want to leave this morning in awe of you. And so through your spirit, would you speak through your word this morning and would you do a work in our hearts and would you help us to see what you're like? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to Psalm 99? If you need a Bible, we have them. We brought one for you if you didn't bring one. So you'll find them on the benches just scattered around. There's probably one close by. 
You can grab ours. You can use it this morning. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would just encourage you to take that home with you. That's our gift to you this morning. If you don't know how to find the Psalms, if you just try to open your Bible right to the middle, you'll probably land on it. So just open your Bible to the middle. I got the exact page. How cool is that? Okay. If you're using our Bible, we're on page 500, Psalm 99. That's where we're going to be this morning. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read through this psalm together, the whole thing. And then we're going to back up and we're going to walk through it together and unpack it a little bit. But I want you to just listen to this. If you need to, if it's helpful, just close your eyes and just listen to the words of the psalm. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. That's Psalm 99. Nine verses just packed with imagery of what God is like. Now, reading a psalm is different than reading through other parts of Scripture. We just spent a year in the book of Acts. That's a narrative account. We would read that much differently than we would read the book of Psalms, but how do we do this? What do we do as we come to this this morning? So we're going to walk through it together. And let me just give you a couple things that might be helpful to you as we go through the Psalms together. Here's a couple things to look for. We're going to read this differently, so we're going to ignore things like punctuation. Everyone in school is like, yes, finally. You have permission to ignore punctuation for the most part. With a Psalm, we read it like a poem, so we're going to read it line by line. And then what you're going to find is that those lines tend to come in pairs sometimes three, even four, but usually in pairs. Two lines that will express the same thought. Sometimes it'll say the same thing in different language. Sometimes it'll be two different things, but about the same theme. Now, our Bible has done a lot of work for us, and it tends to group those couplets together. So you're going to see that as we go line by line. You're going to see we're actually going to go verse by verse as we walk through the psalm. We're going to walk through all nine verses. Now, There are two things I want you to look for, so you've got kind of a scavenger hunt as we go line by line. Two things I want you to look for. One is I want you to look for language that is repeated over and over again. Some of you have already landed on some of that. You've already heard it as I read through it, but I want you to look for things that get repeated. There are two specific phrases that get repeated that I want you to find. The other thing that I want you to look for is I want you to just notice how the psalm progresses. This psalm is set up kind of like a funnel. It starts really big, and then it ends up really quite small. 
It starts way beyond us, and it ends up very, very personal. And I want you to watch as it progresses through the psalm. All right, I think we're ready. This psalm kind of breaks down into three basic movements, and each movement ends with the same phrase. So that's your first hint on your scavenger hunt. The first movement, the whole point of it is to say God is awesome in the most deep and meaningful sense of the word awesome. God is awesome. He is awe-inspiring. So look with me at these first few verses. Verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Do you see? Two lines. They're talking about the same thing. They actually say almost the same thing, just using different language. It says, The Lord reigns. God is king. He is the king. Let the people tremble. He is a king, and his kingship, his authority, his majesty causes people to tremble before him. It could almost be written to just say, tremble before your king, God. And then the second line says, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Anyone know what a cherubim is? Like a cute naked baby with wings, right? That's how we see it depicted in art. Not that kind of cherubim. The biblical cherubim, as Isaiah or Ezekiel would describe them, are almost human-like, but very bizarre, very majestic. They have four wings. They have four faces. Every time God is pictured, we see them around Him, and they protect the glory of God. They're these almost fearsome, but still human-like creatures. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. What does that even mean? Certainly God sits enthroned in heaven where the angels are. But for the people of Israel, what do they think of when they think of the cherubim? They probably think of the Ark of the Covenant, which you all know from Indiana Jones. (laughs) The big golden box, beautifully adorned with two cherubim on top that was known as the footstool of God. It's where he rested his feet in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. So Israel is unlike any other kingdom on the earth. You walk into any other kingdom and you walk into the palace and what do you see on the throne? You see a man. You see a king. You walk into the nation of Israel. You don't walk into a palace. You walk into a temple and you see God himself enthroned. God is the king of Israel. That's the language. That's the depiction here. Enthroned on the cherubim. The, the Ark of the Covenant is kept in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. You don't just wander in there because if you wander in there, you die because the holiness of God is unapproachable. It is the, the hot spot, like the core of the glory of God. His presence on the earth exists in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's feet rest, where He reigns over the nation of Israel. That's the picture here. God enthroned as king in the heavens and over Israel with his feet on the cherubim. The result of this is fear and trembling. The description of that God is awe-inspiring. And we are to tremble before that God. Not just people tremble before God. The second line, the earth itself trembles before this God. That's the bigness of Him. 
Do you see how big this is? Do you see the picture that's being painted for us? We're supposed to get a sense of the awe-inspiring presence of God. All of that in two lines, just loaded with imagery of who God is as king, awesome king over Israel. Verse 2 says, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. The Lord is great in Zion. Originally, Zion was a city, a specific city that David conquered. It became known as the city of David. Eventually, Zion became, came to be known as like Jerusalem, and then it came to be known as all of Israel. When we referred to Zion, they referred to the kingdom of Israel, the whole nation. By the time you get to the end of the New Testament, Zion actually means all of God's people, not just the Jews, but all of God's people. That's the language that's used to describe God's people is Zion. It says the Lord is great in Zion. He's, he's exalted over all people. What does it mean? He's over all Zion. He is the greatest. He has no equal. No equal even among his chosen people. No equal even among those who follow God. God is without equal. He is a great God. Then verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The appropriate response to the greatness and awesomeness of God is what? It's praise. It's praise. What an awesome God whose feet rest on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies who reigns in heaven and reigns over Israel. What a great God who has no equal. There is nothing like His greatness, not even among his chosen people. What an awesome God. What a great God. What a holy God. He uses that word to end this first movement. God is like a king, the psalmist is saying. God is like a king, a great king, the greatest in all the land, except that he's nothing like that. He's nothing like that at all. In fact, he's completely unlike that because he's not like any king we've ever seen. There's no king with this authority. There's no king that inspires this kind of fear or awe. There is no king that is this great. That's what it means that he's holy. He's completely different. He's totally separate. Completely different than anything we've ever seen that not only men but the very earthquakes in the presence of this king. This king is totally pure. He's holy. This king inspires fear. He is holy. God's holiness means that he is completely unlike anything or anyone we have ever seen. That's what it means. That's what we're meant to understand. And this first movement of the psalm ends with that proclamation. God is holy. He's awesome. He's great. And he's holy. And the only appropriate response is to praise him. That's it. So God is awesome. All that to say, God is awesome. The second movement starts in the next verse, verse 4, and the whole movement of the second one is that God is just. We see God's action now. Verse 4 says this, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. This king that we're describing, this mighty king, awesome, great king, loves 
justice. He's established equity. What, what does that mean? It means that God cares about what is right. He is fair. He's impartial. And he acts accordingly with his character. Do you see that? It's not only saying that God is these things. God acts this way. It says this awesome God who is good and just and fair, all of those qualities of him are evidenced in the way that he interacts with us. Look what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Israel. Jacob is the people of God. He says, God, you have acted rightly among your people. You have been just. That is a true thing about you. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. The second movement ends the same way as the first movement. The only appropriate response to the justice of God and the righteousness of God is to exalt Him, is to worship Him, is to praise Him. That's all we can do. What an awesome God. It says, worship at his footstool. Well, what's his footstool? We already talked about it. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Come into God's temple and worship him. Worship at the feet of God, this mighty king who acts justly and does what is right. He's a good king, and he's an awesome king, and he's holy. What does it mean that he's holy? God is like A mighty king, but he's not like any king we've ever known. God is like an impartial judge. He's like a just ruler, except he's not like that, except he's not like any judge we've ever known because there's no judge who's this righteous. There's no judge who's this fair and impartial. There's no judge we've ever known who acts with perfect integrity that his character and his actions are perfectly aligned because God is completely separate. He is totally pure. He is awe-inspiring. He is fear-inducing. That is the God that we're talking about that's being described. That God's holiness that is being claimed over and over by the psalmist means He's nothing like anyone or anything you've ever experienced in your life. That's the holiness of God. Now the last movement of the psalm The whole thing says God is approachable. You're going to start to see now, you're probably already seeing the funnel happen. (laughs) It started with describing this amazing, awesome God who reigns in heaven, whose feet rest on the earth. He's a mighty God. He's a just God. We see how he interacts with his people in his justice and his righteousness. He's done what is right. So that big God interacts with people in a just and righteous way. And now the end of the psalm is, what does that mean for me as an individual? It's going to bring it down to the individual level. Now it's not going to name us, but it's going to name people and show how God interacts on a personal level. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. Moses and Aaron and Samuel, these are people. These are regular people. They did great things for God, but they're regular people and they're in relationship with God. 
Do you see that? They have a relationship with God. How do we know? Look at this. They called to the Lord, and what? And he answered. They called to the Lord, and he answered. Now, the Psalms are loaded with imagery, and the image that I get in my head when I hear this phrase, they called to the Lord, and he answered, is the image of a child in bed at night in the dark. We've all been there, (laughs) maybe as a child, maybe as a parent. You're awake, it's dark, you're scared. And it's that call, that nervous, unsure call. Mom, Dad, that one, you've called it or you know it. What happens when that call goes unanswered? What if there's no one there and you're just alone in the darkness? That is terrifying. It is terrifying to be alone and dark and unsure. But what is the feeling that you have when you see the light come on or you hear the footsteps or you hear the answer and mom or dad walk in? It's rescue. It is relief. You have someone to comfort you. Someone has come to save you out of the darkness. You called and someone answered. That's the language here. Moses and Aaron and Samuel called. And God, the mighty God, the King, answered them. Can you believe that? God in relationship with people. The next verse, verse 7. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. The image of the pillar of cloud is the image of God in the Old Testament. The presence of God appears. He appears as a cloud. He's still unlike anything we've ever experienced before. As God led the people, the children of Israel, through the wilderness during the day, he appeared as a pillar of cloud and at night a pillar of fire. That has to be pretty weird. I guess after 40 years you get used to it. (laughs) But the presence of God among his people is like indescribable. It's like nothing we've ever seen. God speaks to them out of the cloud. It's a picture of the image of God. And what happens? It says they kept his testimonies and his statutes. Being in the presence of God, having God tell them how they ought to live and how they ought to be changes their behavior, changes who they are. And they follow in obedience to a holy God. Not perfectly, but following God changes them. These people... Moses and Aaron and Samuel do great things because of who God is and what He's doing. Verse 8, O Lord our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Kind of makes three statements in there. He said, God, You answered them. You came near. And not only did You come near, God, but You were merciful because You forgave them. You came near and you forgave, but you're still just. Because do you see? He did not avenge their enemies. He avenged their sin. What is he referring to? First thing that comes to mind when I think of this, specifically with Moses and Aaron. If you remember the story of them leading the children of Israel through the desert, and the children of Israel, miserable people, by the way, probably a lot like us, a total pain to be around and lead through the desert, whining and complaining, all the time. 
And they come to this place where they have no water, and they're like, why can't we just be slaves in Egypt where there's water, Moses? Why did you rescue us out of Egypt? And Moses is so frustrated. Moses and Aaron go to God, and he says, speak to this rock, and I will have water come out of it for my people. And Moses is just so mad, he walks over to the rock, and he just hits it with his staff, twice actually. And water comes out, and the people of Israel are satisfied, and God is dissatisfied. And God says this to Moses. He says, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to my people, you will not see the promised land. God avenges their sin. I am a gracious God. I'm a forgiving God, but you don't take advantage of that. And Moses, you were meant to display my holiness to my people. God declares his holiness even there, like it's being declared in this psalm. You were meant to image that, Moses, to my people, and you failed to do that, and so you'll be punished. But I'm still near, and I'm still forgiving. But I am always just. And so you can be sure that God is merciful, but you can't abuse that God is merciful. You can't trade on God's mercy. That's the lesson. The last verse, the end of the third movement of the psalm says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The appropriate response to the proximity of God is to exalt Him, is to worship Him, is to praise Him. What a marvelous God that despite His holiness, He draws near to us to be in relationship. It ends with the proclamation of God's holiness again. God is holy. God's holiness means He is completely unlike anyone or anything we have ever known. Everything about Him is different. Everything about Him is separate. Everything about Him is unlike. Everything about Him is other. And yet, He draws near to us. That's crazy. Praise God. He is awesome. He is great. He is the King. He is mighty. He is just and right. And He is ours. Do you see that? I ask you to look for two things to get repeated over and over, and one of them is very clear. God is holy, and we praise Him. It says it over and over again. God is holy. The only thing that is right for us to respond in is praise and worship and exaltation. But the second thing is that He is our God. He is claimed as our God. Do you see that phrase? The Lord, our God. That phrase is used 11 times in 150 psalms, and it's used four times in Psalm 99. Four times it shows up here. It is loaded with that language. Look, verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. Verse 9, it's in there twice. Exalt the Lord our God. The Lord our God is holy. This king, this awesome king that we've been describing, this mighty God, has revealed his majesty throughout the world. We sang about it this morning. All of creation reveals the majesty of our God. 
but he's made himself accessible to those who will call to him. He's drawn near to those who will call out to him, and that's impossibly amazing. For those who call to him, he answers. He answers. That God, do you see the funnel? That God, without description, draws near and says, if you call to me, I will answer you. Amazing. Amazing. God is so good. He is so pure. He is so holy. There is nothing we can compare God to. Not anything that we can point to. He's like a king, a great king, except he's not, because there's no king like that. He's like a great judge, except he's not like that. There's nothing we can point to because he's completely unlike anything that we've ever seen, except Jesus. Until Jesus, there's nowhere to point. But we, as followers today, as people who live under the new promise, as those who live in the New Testament, the new covenant of God, we can point to Jesus and say, that's what my God is like. He's like that. He's just like that. We have the privilege of seeing God in Jesus. Because that holy God, that pure God, we can't be like Him. We can't be like Him. We can't be near Him. You can't wander into God because you die. That's what happens in the Old Testament. That's why they tie a rope to the ankle of the priest when he goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. In case he dies in the presence of God, they can drag the body out. That's the holiness of God. You can't be like Him and you can't be near Him. So He became like you so that He could be near to you. It's impossible. It's unbelievable. What we see in Psalm 99 is those who are looking at Psalm 99 through the end of the New Testament is we see Jesus. We see the Gospel that the mighty, awesome God came near and said, if you call, I will answer. What a marvelous God. What an unbelievable truth that the God whose throne is on the cherubim, the God whose feet rest on the earth, the God who is unapproachably majestic and holy, loves you. And He loves me. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? For those of you who call in the darkness, he answers. When you call out, Dad, he answers. And he shows up. And the language of Scripture says that he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He rescues us. The loving Father who rescues his children out of darkness. That's the picture that we see. If you don't know that God, that's the God that we worship here. If you don't know Him, that's who He is. He's that God. And if you call, He will answer. And He will come. And He will rescue you. And He will comfort you. And if you want to know what that looks like for you, please just come and ask. 
and talk to us. For those of you who are here, who have surrendered your life to Him, that God is your Father and you are a child of God, this is our God. That's what He's like. Isn't that amazing? What should we do? If that's true, what should we do? What does the psalmist say? Fall on your face and worship before a holy God. Worship at the feet of that God. Tremble at the greatness of that God and marvel at the goodness of that God. What a marvelous God. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are amazing. Lord, would you hear us now as we sing to you? Would you hear these praises? They're wholly inadequate, but we lift them up to you. It's all we can do is to praise you. Thank you for drawing near. Thank you for answering when we call. We love you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen.